You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number five. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling, who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. Today, my co-host is Pam Barnhill. Pam is an author, speaker, blogger at edsnapshots.com, and you'll probably recognize her from her two popular podcasts, Homeschool Snapshots and Your Morning Basket. Together, we're talking with a guest today, Robbie Jane, the co-author of a book we highly recommend, The Liberal Arts Tradition, A Philosophy of Christian Classical Education. Robbie is a graduate of Davidson College, Reformed Theological Seminary, and the University of Central Florida. His interests include physics, ancient Greek, and international political economy. He's worked at various churches and began teaching calculus and physics at the Geneva School in Orlando, Florida in 2003. During his tenure there, he not only authored the liberal arts tradition, but he's also given over 50 talks and workshops throughout the country. And we were very honored and excited to speak with him. This episode is sponsored by Work the Plan. Sure, you have a plan, but does it work? Do you know how to make it happen? Work the Plan is a condensed, straightforward, self-paced online course that will teach you the habits, practices, and tools you need to put your plan into action. Learn to work your plan, roll with the punches, and choose the right next thing. Use the discount code SISTERS for 20% off. Visit SimplifiedOrganization.com to learn more. In today's episode, Pam and I have a great conversation with Robbie Jane on the subject of balancing work with wonder. How do both of those fit together? What happens when our students seem to have lost the wonder? What if we seem to have lost the wonder? Ravi had great thoughts on this. We also discussed piety in our nitty-gritty homeschool question. In the liberal arts tradition, we're told that piety is the foundation of learning. What are some practical ways to nurture and build it? We discuss all these questions and more in today's episode. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. All right, so we're ready to start with our Scalay RDA. And Robbie, if you don't mind, since you're our guest, we'll let you go first. But our Scalay RDA is just based on our idea that as teachers, we have to continually be schooling ourselves and learning and growing. And so if you want to share something that's keeping you inspired and growing, because you're a teacher, just like us, (laughs) do you have more students, right? Uh, Yeah, I suppose, but I don't have them for quite as long as you guys do. So it might balance out. Um, (laughs) That's true. Oh, goodness. It might be good for me to hear uh, one of you guys tell me what you guys are doing as a school ARDA, simply because I'm not quite sure how to contextualize it yet. Okay, sure. Pam, you want to start? I will start. I can do that. Okay. I have been reading Raising Kids Who Read by Daniel T. Willingham. He's actually going to be a guest on another podcast we know and love. That podcaster told me that he was fabulous. And so I went out and bought his book. He wrote, Why Don't Students Like School? Do you remember that one? Oh, I've heard of that book. Okay. Yeah. So we had read that in my school group 
a couple of years ago now, not too long after it first came out, and we appreciated it. So I was really getting into this one. I've been in, enjoying it. I'm not horribly far into the book, but I'm enjoying the way that he is talking about really practical things parents can do. One of the things that I love that he was talking about in here was that you don't need to outsource reading, not just reading instruction, but kids loving reading and being readers to mm-hmm. the school because he looks on reading as kind of a virtue. So I was going to read you a quote. Oh, sure. Go for it. If I found out tomorrow that the research, he's talking about reading research, was flawed and that reading doesn't make you smarter, I would still want my kids to read. I want them to read because I think reading offers experiences otherwise unavailable. There are other things to learn, other ways to emphasize with our fellow human beings, other ways to appreciate beauty, but the texture of these experiences is different when we read. I want my children to experience it. Thus, for me, reading is a value. It's a value like loving my country or revering honesty. And it's this status at a value as a value that prompts me to say, don't expect the schools to do the job for you. So he likens it. He goes on to make an analogy that would be like if you found out that your child was going to raise your grandchildren in a different faith than what you'd raise them as and said, well, I can't understand it. I sent her to Sunday school each week, Hmm. but you didn't actually live that faith. And so in your home. And so he's saying you have to live that reading in your home if you have any expectation of your child being someone who appreciates reading. Interesting. And it's great because he's this research guy. I can't remember if he's an economist or something, but he's really Mm -hmm. into all of this research. He makes it great and easy to read too. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, I have a new school RDA to share because Classical Academic Press sent me a care package, or at least that's what I'm calling it. (laughs) I felt very cared for when they sent it to me. (laughs) (laughs) They sent me Grant Horner's John Milton book, John Milton Classical Learning and the Progress of Virtue. Mm. I just barely started it. I always say that. I feel like I just I start books. (laughs) The first chapter is basically a quick biography of Milton, which has just been great because we've been studying Milton in school this year. My 13 year old is reading Paradise Lost and we've been going through some of his stuff. And so it's just been kind of cool to see a more condensed biography where I'm kind of getting a brief overview. It's been neat because it's connected to what we're doing this year. Uh, And I didn't choose it that way on purpose. I chose it at the recommendation of my pastor who really liked the book. So I'm excited about it. Okay. So did your pastor recommend the book from Classical Academic Press or Pilgrim's Progress? Well, he would recommend both, but he specifically (laughs) was raving about this Milton book. I have read Milton's essay on education, but Grant Horner has a very interesting take on Milton. My take was that Milton is sort of like Dorothy Sayers. He wrote one essay. He never taught a child. Why is he a big deal? <laughs> but Grant Horner's, he, his assumption seems to be that Milton, I mean, he was light Sayers. He was classically educated, but that his views on education are actually woven throughout all of the stuff that he wrote. Mm. And so it sounds like he's going to try to pull all that out and show kind of an overarching philosophy that's embedded everywhere. I really had, I think, I mean, I love Milton's essay, but I think I had kind of come away from it thinking it's an essay. <laughs> and he's saying, it's part of a way bigger picture. So that's exciting. No, oh, that is cool. Yeah. So Ravi, what about you? Are you reading anything or staying inspired somehow? Yeah, I'm, I'm always reading things. And kind of like you, Brandy, I sometimes started more books than I've finished. <laughs> it's uh, very true. Um, but, you know, you mentioned Paradise Lost and uh, I'm enjoying actually have the privilege of sitting in on another teacher who's just finished teaching that. And uh, so I just call that listening. But it, yeah. it 
it strikes a bell with me too. It's, um, I'll have to start that Grant Horner book. I've got it, but I haven't started it yet. But you know, the thing, <laughs> this is going to, you're going to laugh when I tell you that the book that I've got in my case right now that I've just been enjoying so much because it is uh, directly related to the name of your group. It's Leisure, the Basis of Fur Culture by Joseph mm. Pieper. Oh, wow. (laughs) We love that book. We do. do. Would you believe that after all these years, you know, we've talked about it at our school. So I've got it derivatively through all our conversations. And I've heard Chris Perrin talk about it, but I had never read the book myself. And so as I'm reading it, I've just realized in my um, that he's just such a giant, you know, that Joseph Pieper's command of ideas are just so immense. And I think it's right at the heart of, you know, how do we talk about the gospel infusing all aspects of life? I think one way mm. is, um, you know, giving people freedom to be who they are. And I think this idea that you have to leave margins and leave room for God to work, um, for people to for people to do unexpected things, just the whole idea of, of hope at the center of a lot of uh, that book because of the ability to let go is also um, part of what hope means. Mm. Not trying to do it all yourself and control everything. So I just, you know, I'm yeah. behind the curve in this one. So I just, uh, <laughs> but I'm really oh, enjoying it. it, you know, so. <laughs> I just thought you'd get a kick out of that. That's probably my new favorite book. Welcome to the Peeper Fan Club. <laughs> <laughs> We're excited to have you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm also reading uh, a little bit of Faith, Hope, and Love by him as well. So I don't know if you've read that one. Oh, I haven't one. heard of that one. Yeah, that one's exceptional. He's uh, pretty impressive. Uh, uh, my headmaster picked up Only the Lover Sings by Peeper, Chris Perrin's recommendation. So I think um, I'm going to go through a Peeper phase uh, right now. You know, just yesterday, someone was telling me that he wrote a book on Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. And that there is a lot more fleshing out of his views on Scolé in that book. So I'm starting to feel like I need to build a library of his works because everything that I've heard in the last week or so, all these different titles that I wasn't aware of, and they all are getting highly recommended by people I respect. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, I don't. You know, I think I've heard of it too, but I, I'm not. I don't know. Well, let's move on to our topical discussion, and we're going to call this one Balancing Work and Wonder. But before I even really frame the discussion, I was thinking we could try to talk about the definition of wonder. Can we define wonder simply and concisely for the purpose of this discussion? Because I feel like when I was looking around trying to prepare for this discussion, I see some people thinking that it's more a feeling or sentiment, other people saying it's more of an action. So my question was, is it both? Do we have a definition of wonder that we can work from? What do you guys think? I'm no good at definitions. Um, I mean, I think for me, uh, wonder is participating in this, this idea of scholae that we're talking about. I've been really surprised at the relationship between wonder and wisdom in the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Aristotle says that wisdom begins in, or philosophy begins in wonder. And this is mm-hmm. kind of similar to stuff that Plato says. It's authentically Socratic insight that comes strongly through Aristotle. The other thing that I think I've been seeing a lot very strongly is when, when you look at the beginning of the liberal arts themselves, as a dis, uh, we get the, this idea of the seven liberal arts from the Middle Ages. In the Roman times, you had the nine liberal arts of Vero, which included medicine and architecture, hmm. but they don't really get canonized into the seven liberal arts until you've got Capella, you know, but he's, his work is so obscure and abstract. It's really around the time of Aquinas or the maybe 11th, 12th, 13th century is that they seem to be picking up this body of very clear tradition and trajectory. But at the same time, the liberal arts are getting established. You get the servile arts being talked about. 
And so this is one of those themes that Pieper picks up on, that the liberal arts and the, and the servile arts are like the articulation of a joint. You've got to have both of them. Hmm. The thing that's been fascinating to me is this idea of a liberal art being for freedom. You know, Aquinas says, because the soul is free. And the servile arts, you know, Pieper doesn't want to denigrate them. And I don't think that the medievals really are denigrating them in, in the same way that the ancient Greeks denigrated the body. You know, like the ancient Greeks had certainly had a lower view of the servile arts. Right. Weren't they almost Gnostic in the sense of not wanting to do anything with their bodies if they could avoid it at all? Yeah. So I think we have that strong tendency in the ancient Greeks, but aura et labora for the Christians, pray and labor, pray and work. In the Christian tradition, that matter is not evil, it's not bad, and work is not bad. The servile mm. arts become elevated, but there's still this interesting idea of the freedom of the soul. And so the liberal arts, the idea of this freeness associated with the life of the mind, I think it's fascinating. It's like it's really at the core of our tradition. What are you wondering at? What do you want to behold? What is beautiful for you? Or hmm. I think it's John Sr. that points out that some of those in the Abbey of St. Victor, I think it was Richard of St. Victor, said, ubi oculus amor est, I think is the quote. I'm missing a word. But basically, <laughs> the idea is... <laughs> is that wherever your eye is, there is your heart. Something like your eye is following the interests of your heart. Hmm. And so th this idea of a lot of your intellectual life is actually driven by your heart, your desires, and your wonder, I think, at that level. But I, I still not a definition. <laughs> Sorry, I'm no good at definitions. Well, you know, I was looking at the liberal arts tradition in preparation for talking with you today and where wonder really came up. You had said in the introduction to the book where you were talking about all of the different methodologies that you were going to outline in the book. And you said that the musical education is an education in wonder mm. and music, musical being not you know, music, learning to play instruments or something like that, but musical education being education that is inspired by the muses. And it comes from the same root word as museum is what you told us in here. So I had kind of written wonder equals education of the heart and moral imagination. I had made that note. And then later on in the section on musical education, you you were talking about the abolition of man and C.S. Lewis and talking about how it was that middle section there, that the middle element, the heart, the moral imagination, that was kind of what he was talking about there in the abolition of man. That kind of spoke to me as to what it could be. It's not necessarily putting knowledge into my children's mind, but putting wisdom into their heart, hmm. helping build that. Well, I feel like that helps a lot because to me, that definition is more inclusive of work than some of the other definitions I've seen, which are just basically bringing it down to the level of delight, really, actually. And so, okay, so I'll just frame kind of why I'm asking this question right now, which is I see the motivation behind unschooling as being really seeing work and wonder as polar opposites sort of makes assumptions, right? So the idea is that work is distasteful to us. And so once we start working, we've killed wonder. And so the solution that tends to be presented within that philosophy, and I say tends because I've met a variety of people that call themselves unschoolers, but would not ascribe to this. The solution is to just do school in a delight directed way. And if we're not feeling it, then we don't do it. We wait until we feel like doing math or we wait until we feel like doing literature. And the goal, I think, is to preserve wonder at all costs. But the question that kept coming up in my mind was, 
can work and wonder coexist. So the definition you just gave, Pam, still allows for them to coexist versus if it's just a feeling, then it makes it harder for them to coexist because we do all know that work has something in it that we tend to resist because it's hard. Anyway, so that's kind of the question where I'm coming from with the question is how do we balance those two things within our philosophy? How do we see them as not mutually exclusive? I feel like I grasp it and then it spills out of my hands like water (laughs) to start working at it again to get back to understanding that, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think where Pam is going with this is all good. And like you're saying, I they're, I think they're clearly not opposed. It's more that with wonder, and, and I can appreciate this, the unschoolers desire to retain wonder in all things. The, the question becomes, though, what happens when you're loving the wrong things? I, I think wonder's mm-hmm. very tied mm-hmm. in with beauty and love and desire. Again, I don't have any definition for it, but I think these are all part of the same conversation. What delights us? But what happens when you're delighted by the wrong things, or certainly our kids are delighted by the wrong things? My mm. son, you know, when he only will eat macaroni and cheese and he he, <laughs> he uh, won't eat the pasta Alfredo that's next to him. Actually, he likes both, but <laughs> not all the time. You know? <laughs> How do you help shape those loves? That's where I think if we are too wonder directed or or forgetting there's a process to shaping those loves and shaping that wonder, that's when wonder can really lead us astray. Or if mm. we think it's all it's only about beauty. The question is, is it just beauty that we behold? Or could there be a beauty that we need to be drawn to that we need to learn to love over time? Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. That's where the liberal arts, the freedom inherent in education, I think this is tied into the idea of freedom of conscience, you know, in the Western Mm -hmm. Christian tradition, that you can't force somebody to believe something. You've got to um, woo them into it. It's the rhetoric. You know, when you think about rhetoric, logos, ethos, pathos. So there's always the desire that is part of an argument because it's got to woo them to the truth. And I think it's that wooing, that delighting, that drawing along that beauty that comes with truth that we're looking for. But of course, then sometimes um, we delight in things that we ought not to and the things that are truly lovely we find distasteful. And that's where perhaps in some cases there's a discipline that might be thought of even as work that shaping those loves. Okay, just to ask a more practical question. So I'm sitting here and I have a child who, let's say, is rejecting their math lesson and they don't want to do the work because they think it's hard. And so how do we approach it from this work and wonder? So let's say it's a a younger child, like around the age of 10. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, like, in that situation, I mean, I know there's a lot to assess without actually being there physically with the child. And but just generally, I guess I wonder, is this a we need to push through and do the work so we get to the point where we see the beauty? Or is it that I've missed the wonder at the outset, the wonder needs to precede the work? And so that's where I've gone wrong? Or could it be both? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it, it could be either or neither. And I think that's where the wisdom of a teacher is, or as a parent is a little bit you know, subtle because mm-hmm. um, there's a danger as educators. We tell kids that this is going to be awesome and it never is. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and we, if that's what's happening, then one, we're going to lose trust. But two, it's just they're also going to lose interest over the course of years. There's got to be tr- something truly beautiful, something truly exciting that we're leading them to. And uh, of course, the first step there is you've got to believe it. You've got to, <laughs> you've got to experience it mm. as beautiful and exciting. But the question is, if then where in the math curriculum, is there anything that's beautiful and exciting? And um, mm. so I think the, well, one of the problems, there's a lot of things going on a math curriculum. And I think when we think of the math curriculum as only problem solving, 
I think we miss a lot of why it's actually been in the tradition for so long. Mm. I think it's why the for the ancients, the idea of music always, you know, for Augustine, that may have been the capstone of the quadrivium. It may have been his vision of what I, we kept math in the curriculum because the universe was alive with music. Then we start to ask a question, well, how does your math, does it ever relate with the music? Of course, if they don't have any categories for music yet, then that's perhaps a prior problem, you know, like real literal instrumental or singing, you know, music. Mm -hmm. But if they do, can you start to build in an idea of, look, let's look at harmonies and ratios. And if you get them to start thinking about the harmonies and ratios in a guitar mm -hmm. string, you might be able to bring out some wonder. But those are the kinds of questions that are a little bit deeper than just problem solving. When we think about math as simply a kind of a series of problem solving things, then it's always a very instrumental discipline in that case. You know, you're using it mm. for the sake of something else. I think that's maybe a key issue is, is the terminus that you're moving towards something that you delight in, truly find lovely, and is really has a little tinge of mystery to it. Or is the terminus that you're going towards really just, you know, another layer of problem solving that they may or may not want to use in their life? You know, it's mm -hmm. funny. We're talking about math here. I interviewed a guest for my Your Morning Basket podcast recently, and her name is Kate Snow. Mm -hmm. Cannot for the life of me remember her blog right now, but she was talking about... I'll look at her. Okay. But we were talking about mathematics, and we were talking about just everything that we only teach the problem-solving aspect of mathematics. Typically, that's all that we teach in school, and that there's this whole bigger world of mathematics that's out there that we never get to. It's like she made this analogy it's like only teaching grammar and never teaching literature wow yeah and That's so I was like, analogy. wow, I was like completely blown away. And so, you know, you teach language arts, you teach grammar and you teach writing and you teach literature and you probably have to teach some spelling or something like that. But in math, we're only teaching the grammar part. We're never getting to any of the rest of it. Wow. Yeah. That was just, that just really kind of blew me away. Okay. So here's my question for you. <laughs> I take no delight in mathematics at all <laughs> of any kind. Because I was never shown the delight and I was never shown that. I was only taught the grammar. Hmm. Sure. You know, how do I, other than outsourcing, which is typically what I do, you know, I've tried to surround my children with some people who do see that and, you know, let them teach them that. But other than that, what do I do to help them see that wonder? How can I evangelize if I'm not part of the religion to begin with? <laughs> well, yeah, no, but how can you pass on a love that you don't have? How can you teach this wonderful if you don't believe it to be so? Absolutely. Those are great questions. You know, I have the same confession. I have the same problem with chemistry. Hmm. I don't have to teach chemistry, but I've every once in a while I discuss chemistry. I took a lot of chemistry in college, but I'm trying to remediate myself simply because I didn't love it. And so now I'm trying to learn to love it. With math, that's a great question. First of all, there's a lot of cool ways in, you know, like I'll just say that I, th I think if we're to talk about a pedagogy of wonder in mathematics, then we can start talking about puzzle proof and play. These are the things that I'm moving towards just to summarize the way I'm thinking about math and the way I'm thinking about teaching math. So let's talk about play for a moment. I don't think this could do everything for us with math, but I think if the kids never get a chance to play with math, Again, they'll never find that wonder. When you think about play, you know, a great, fun, beautiful thing to play with are things like tessellations or fractals. Mm -hmm. You guys probably have seen uh, one or both of those things before. Do you know what, what I'm describing when I say tessellations or fractals? I feel like I've heard the word, but don't know what you mean. Yeah, well, yeah I, mean, I know you, what tessellations are, but... 
Yeah, so if you take a shape or a pattern, um, a geometric shape or pattern, and would repeat it over and over again to create some kind of beautiful structure, you know, that might be a tessellation. But a fractal is probably more interesting from a mathematical point of view because it has these fascinating properties. You know, people used to talk about the coastline of England as being fractal in shape. Or one idea of a fractal is that it can be a, fi- a finite area, like it could be maybe a, a fit on a sheet of notebook paper or something. The boundary that you draw as you're drawing the picture of the fractal is of infinite length. So how could you draw a boundary of infinite length on a sheet of notebook paper, You know, where this boundary separates two regions, an inside and an outside, for example? The thing that people have done with these fractals is they were discovered around the 50s or 60s. What they did is they colored them, and so they've become these just beautiful, gorgeous pictures where there's now a lot of a large community of fractal artists around the world. The interesting thing is that sometimes the fractal art looks like trees or looks like clouds. It looks like things in nature. Wow. Yeah, so it's just a fun way in to talk about fractals or tessellations and just explore those things uh, visually. Or um, in, in the book, we say a little bit about Nicomachus and his work with figurate numbers. Those are really quite interesting. I had no idea how powerful they were, but the idea is if you draw a triangle, where we've all drawn triangles before, but what if you don't draw a triangle, but let's say you've got a number of marbles and you want to construct a triangle out of marbles, but Mm. you kind of want it to be filled in. So not just the outside of the triangle, but you want it to be filled in. Well, you might put one marble at the top, and then underneath that, in the second row, you'd put two underneath that, and that creates a little triangle. Mm. But if you wanted to create a third row, then you'd add a third row of three. And so your top row has one. Underneath that, you've got a row of two. Underneath that, you've got a row of three. And, you know, it's a little filled-in triangle called a triangular number. Hmm. The number that they refer to there is one plus two plus three, the top row plus the middle row plus the bottom row. One plus two plus three equals six. And so this is a whole kind of number that I had never heard of, certainly as a kid, and not until I was probably 35, that I ever heard of triangular numbers before. Hmm. They're really kind of fun to play with. My son, who's five or six years old, they, it's just like drawing, you know, it's just kind of fun drawing. And they like to just play hmm. with them and just count the dots and things like that. There's a lot of things like that that can create kind of an imagination or that, oh man, things could be fun in mathematics as opposed to only being about problem solving. But that's what I mean when we talk about a pedagogy of puzzle proof and play. The play part of it can just be some of that free exploration in a way of what you're describing the unschoolers are hoping for or going for. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about, and we're using math as our example, and we're talking a little bit about how to bring out that wonder. And I think that's a place where a lot of us struggle especially if we can't see it ourselves. Why is the work so important? Because Mm. I'm going to guess that we can't eschew the work. So Mm -hmm. could you talk about the importance of the relationship between the two? It's a good question again. I mean, again, it, the thing is, is I've become more and more skeptical of the math curriculum as it exists, as received in the 21st century to us, because it is so instrumental. It's so designed to serve purposes extrinsic to itself. In the tradition, you you have arithmetic geometry, which really are kind of about pure math. You know, it's like math for math's sake. Um, and then you've got astronomy and music, which are sometimes called the middle sciences. Now, of course, these four were actually all mathematical sciences. These four together were called mathematics. Now, Hmm. astronomy wasn't only studied as a liberal art. It was also studied as a part of natural philosophy. It was also studied before that as a musical discipline, the education of the muses as you look up at the night sky, at the stars and name constellations. That would have been astronomy um, not as a liberal art, but just as part of your general musical education that any uh, boy or girl would have 
before they were 14. But when you get to your high school years, essentially, or as you're moving to the quadrivium, those are all mathematical subjects. So you're not just looking at the stars, but you're looking at mathematical relationships among them. When it comes to music, you're not just thinking about um, how you learn to play a harp or a lyre or a violin, you know, today or a piano, but you're looking at the kind of like the more of the acoustic structure of music, the frequencies, the nature of the mathematical ratios of the, the lengths of strings and things like that. Hmm. Coming up with a new theorem in geometry would have been thought of as kind of a cool goal in and of itself. So for example, um, what size cube could you inscribe in a sphere? That might be some cool idea. Or how would you build a parabolic arch? Um, or how, how do you construct a parabola? What would be the area underneath it? Because that might be important for if you're doing some building or just as a pure math problem. So these kinds of things, they have some intrinsic interest just for pure math. But then in astronomy and music, it's like math is revealing the structure of reality. Hmm. And so in that case, then you do have math being used kind of as a way to know, as a way to know reality. I mean, so architecture was not considered a liberal art because in that case, it was a, it was a servile art. It was good for the, mm -hmm. I like to call them the common arts. It was a common art that was to be used for the good of man's physical bodily existence. But it wasn't for the life of the mind. The architecture wasn't um, geared for you to understand reality in and of itself. It was used for you to build stuff for the common good of man. And so the point is that when we only think of math as for uses like architecture, we're looking at a good that's extrinsic to the math itself. When you're talking about finding something beautiful within number, that's a good that's intrinsic to math. Or when you're mm -hmm. saying, we need to develop your mathematical faculties so you can see reality truly. Like you can look out and see the harmony in the stars, or you can recognize that the universe is literally alive with music when balls are rolling down ramps or, you know, things like that. That's mm -hmm. a little bit of a different perspective. It's not merely problem solving for extrinsic uses. The difficulty is our curriculum isn't really designed for that kind of beauty. And so you're kind of keeping them on this track where you're always promising them, we're going to use this later on. You need to know the quadratic formula because you're going to use that in pre-calculus. You need to know trigonometry because you're going to use that in calculus. You need to know calculus because you've got to use that in college. And it's kind of a lie, you know, <laughs> they <don't>, right. <laughs> it ends up nowhere. And so that's the question is how to, I think at the end of the day, we need to figure out those placeholders. So there's beauty in the curriculum at each of these levels, you know, that's you know, some substantial, meaningful things within the math itself. And then the math is a way of seeing reality. Gosh, that is so interesting, Ravi. I'm mean, just thinking because I feel like lately I've run across a lot of people saying that the problem with teaching math to kids is that it needs to be more problem solving. And if they can do this problem solving, then they'll understand how practical it is. And then they'll like it because it's practical. It'll help <laughs> them or something in their life. And I feel like with my kids, they're like, we don't care how many strawberries used to be in the bucket and how many are on the plate. I and and I, so I'm like, this is not reaching. Them. That's right. <laughs> And it's so frustrating. And, and I think my math curriculum has more beauty than a lot of other math curricula I've seen. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot farther it could go also or how f much farther I could go as a teacher. So that is just fascinating to me. So, Brandy, are you using uh, MEP Mathematics Enhancement Program? I am. And I do love it. But I still feel like 
I have one child in particular that still isn't seeing the significance or the pattern, doesn't see patterns as naturally, yeah. I think is maybe part of it. Yeah, that's so interesting, Brandy, because I, I do think that that's a really nice program. I've been taking a look at it. I feel like there's a lot of great things about it, but you're right. And it's not so much the fault of the people that are creating the program. It's the fault of how we conceive of math in the, in the early 21st century. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is you are also right in saying it could go further. It's not that it's self-bad. It's that it just doesn't bring it together. Man, I'm, I'm looking at this problem right now. I mean, Chris Perrin and I have just been talking about this and thinking probably would not be that difficult to help produce a guide that could meet this need to take it just to the next level. It's not bad. It's just how do you integrate it? How do you bring it all together so that the beauty and the wisdom can be brought together in the math curriculum itself? Mm. But, you know, this is not a problem that's exclusive to mathematics. When you think about every subject that's being taught these days, I think it's it's tougher wow. in mathematics and it's tougher for homeschool moms with mathematics. But when you look at what's being done in the schools with, you know, them stripping out the literature and focusing more on nonfiction kinds of readings, because we're stripping everything down to the utilitarian and we're leaving none of yeah, the. Yeah, you got it. That's so true. Yeah. Because we don't agree on it in a secular system. People don't agree on this. And so you just, we'll just leave that out. But when you start leaving all of it out, it's like nothing's meaningful anymore. It's all trivial in the wrong sense of that word, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you have that absence of wonder that C.S. Lewis was warning us about so many years ago now. Well, I think that it sounds like what we need is some sort of supplemental curriculum that focuses on the beauty that we can add it. You know what I mean? Like once a week activities or something that we can add in to try to emphasize that. I would love to set aside one day a week where we were, well, Pam, didn't you do that with your co-op? You're going to hire someone that's going to just focus on wonder one day a week or something. Did you say that? Yeah, we do. We have a mom. But we, we don't hire. She volunteers. <laughs> You know, her kids come to co-op. She volunteers, but she, okay. she was a biomedical engineer and she can, she just gets geeky excited about all this <laughs> in ways awesome. that I don't. Yeah, so, there you go. She loves mathematics and she just, you can see the fire in her the same way that I would talk to you about, you know, Shakespeare or crafting something and writing a poem or something like that in figurative language. She comes in and talks about math in that way. I think for... That's a great you know, solution. Yeah. yeah, for for somebody like us, that's something we could do for classical schools. Obviously, you're going to hire teachers that are doing that, that have that excitement. For homeschool moms, to me, that was kind of the best thing. And I try to do things at home. Right now, we're reading Life of Fred and More Time. Mm -hmm. The kids are really enjoying that. We were talking about Archimedes today and, and things of that nature. But that's a situation where I'm kind of learning right along mm -hmm. with them. Do you think that's helping you get a little bit of wonder yourself? Yeah, I think it does. Another thing that Kate had recommended were the By Heart videos, V-I-H-A-R-T videos on YouTube. And they're oh. called Doodling in Math Class. And she talks about, is it Pascal's Triangle? Yeah, um, Pascal's Triangle is Yeah, cool. and how you see the golden mean and how you see all the patterns in nature. And she's just doodling. And they're really well done kind of YouTube huh. videos. And yeah, I'm just sitting there learning right along with the kids. Not necessarily always understanding everything. And that's the beauty of morning time. You're just a student right along with them. And it's okay. Well, Ravi, I know you're yeah. writing another book right now, but in your spare time, if you want to throw together a wonder-based math supplementary <laughs> curriculum, you go right ahead. <laughs> we'll buy it. Well, thanks. Thanks, Brandy. <laughs>
you know, here's the truth, Brandy, as I've been actually very impressed by the homeschooling community, you know, as I've gotten to know you and I'm seeing the work that you guys as the school boy sisters do and the extensions outward, I've realized that this is a, you know, you guys are very serious thinkers. Moreover, some of our best students of the next generation may be coming out of homeschools and homeschool co-ops and things like that. You're also more nimble. You know, you can make changes more quickly than schools mm -hmm. can. And um, so it's interesting as the difficult challenge that it, it is to, um, uh, well, as far as just thinking about where the hope for education lies, I'm, I've just, you guys offer a ton of hope for thinking about education reform and growth in America. And on the other hand, this is really a place where there aren't a lot of resources. And I would love to see those resources made available because, yeah, what do you do in math and science in a way that really builds that wonder and wisdom and worship? This is still coherent. It still participates and kind of leads to the kinds of things that you would need to study in the university. So I, I really started to <laughs> gain some uh, sensibility for the need that you guys have. And, and I do think it's it's a it's just a good cause. You know, it's like what you guys are doing is good and you guys need something. Yeah, I would do. love to work on it if I have the problem, <laughs> if I have the, the opportunity. So yeah, if anybody has any ideas, let me know what would be helpful. And, you know, we'll keep those under advisement. <laughs> so. <laughs> we'll tell Kate Snow to contact you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we should move on to our third segment because I'm looking at the time here and get to our nitty gritty homeschool question, which is what are some practical ways of building piety? And we took that question out of the liberal arts tradition. I was just going to read a little snippet from that, which I know you helped write it, Ravi, but <laughs> I don't know about you. I forget what I've written sometimes. So. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. But anyway, I was just going to read. It says, piety signifies the duty, love, and respect owed to God, parents, and communal authorities past and present. It connotes the cultivation of faithfulness in relationships and commitment to one's tradition as historically situated in place and time. And so I just thought we could talk briefly about if I'm coming to this idea for the very first time, because, you know, in the liberal arts tradition, you start out with that beautiful tree and the tree is rooted in piety, which is the ground everything's growing out of. And you're basically saying, you know, that's the foundation of everything else. Therefore, it's a big deal. <laughs> and so trying to build piety in our homes gets super important when we put it in that perspective. Oh, so yeah. I'm thinking, what are some things that we can give people today to walk away with trying in their homes and seeing if they can start aiming at piety a little bit more deliberately? <laughs> you have any ideas, Pam? Well, the other thing that they talked about in liberal arts tradition, Kevin and Robbie, was the consider the role manners play. So that was mm. one of the practical examples they gave us about piety was the role that manners play in ordering the actions of children towards one another. Obviously, the Charlotte Mason habit training that you are so fond of, Brandy, mm -hmm. and then I don't call it anything quite so formal in my house. It's, hey, get over here and do what you're supposed to do. Do it or else works. <laughs> That's that right. Works too. <laughs> um, treating others as you would want to then comes down to a lot of modeling in our house. I also think service is probably a big thing. Acts of mm -hmm. service in the community, corporal works of mercy. I think working through those kinds of things with kids would be a way to ground them in piety. We're going to start here. We're going to start by not only being manly towards each other, but learning to serve one another as Christ would want us to. And that is probably going to be like a place to start. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, those are all, those are really good. And I, I just have to say here, I think that you guys are the heroes in this pursuit. I think that when I think cultivating piety, so many of the homeschool families that I've met, they're light years 
beyond me in the pursuit of this. I think in some ways that's why they homeschool is because they have recognized that the school culture in many cases is, is transmitting values they don't agree with. And so they have loves that are disordered. It's I sense that many people homeschool because they want to convey their a love of Christ, a love of family to their own kids. I can give some some comments, but I just want to I'll just say, I think that there are ways that we can do this in very ordinary things like manners, um, respecting and honoring parents, uh, younger siblings, paying respect to older siblings, older siblings showing deference to younger siblings. There's lots of things that can be done on a practical level. This has been in culture since before the Ten Commandments. And I think the Ten Commandments codified, honor your mother and father, you know, and the first commandment with the promise, as we're reminded in Ephesians, that it may go well with with you. Mm. It's also always been a struggle. You know, so you see Solomon and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, right? He's leaned on his own counselors, his own friends, as opposed to his father's counselors. And so you see the younger generation rebelling against the older generation. It's every generation's question. Are they going to respect and honor their parents, their grandparents, those who have gone before them? Or are they going to rebel and think that their ways are better? than their predecessors. I'll give a practical way I think we might need to attend to as um, parents and home educators, and then I'll give a more general way. The practical way is that I think we've got these subtle attitudes in us too, that we've got Mm -hmm. these subtle attitudes of impiety in us, and that this is one of those things that kids just figure out by imitation. One of the questions I think we really need to be asking is, um, how are we showing respect and deference to our own parents? How are we showing Mm. respect to the community authorities at our church, Um, the way we think about our pastor, or perhaps you're in a church with elders or people like that? How do we participate in that community? We should be careful watching our hearts for gossip and and those kinds of things, because Mm. I think those are the ways that we can almost inadvertently pass along that impiety. You know, and and this is one of those places where I feel like there's a lot of things happening in Christian counseling that often talk about this kind of thing, that one of the biggest issues is just recognizing that you may be carrying around a lot of antagonism towards your own parents, you know, Hmm. and just kind of looking at that and um, being willing to forgive them for things that they may have done wrong. I think that those kinds of things might be, you know, kind of hidden areas. When we think about cultivating piety in our kids, um, one of the things we may actually need to look at the most is how are we living it out? I guess that's my practical advice. No pressure. We just have to model perfectionism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, this means I probably shouldn't be um, yelling at the little old lady who's driving real slow in front of me, in front of my (laughs) 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 Darn, I really messed that one up. (laughs) Sorry to ruin your fun, Pam. (laughs) But you know, that's what it comes down to then. Oh, is, you know, how are we not personally? I mean, we can see the breakdown of this grounding in piety just in the way our society treats the elderly. Yeah. And so I think that's a really practical way. It's not a practical way to think of building up piety in our kids, but that's a practical way for us to really grasp and understand what this piety is all about. How do we look to that older generation? How are we holding them up? And then a lot of times we aren't. And so you can see where it's breaking down. This kind of reminds me of how Charlotte Mason, she basically said the Gospels give us three commands in regard to children, and they're all negative commands. So it's hinder not, offend not, 
and despise not. And in the context of that, she uses that to frame a discussion about us being so careful not to inadvertently be a corruptive influence on them. Because even though they're born sinful, there's a lot of ways we ruin them <laughs> as they're getting older. You know, by setting bad examples or putting sinful things before their eyes. I was rereading a chapter in one of her books the other day, and I was just reminded of how she really emphasizes being so careful, especially with our youngest of young children, you know, under the age of nine, basically. I was thinking about her idea, this hinder not, despise not, offend not, all these commands we see in scripture in regard to children. It's really like a big be careful sign. (laughs) Be so careful about how we are with them. It's just so true because it's so easy to just even forget that they're watching. Yeah. So along with modeling the piety, of course, to our parents and to the elders in in our church and the elderly, like you mentioned, Pam, I think that there's, of course, that question about doing something like family worship. What is our prayer life with our family? And and that's, again, why I think that you guys are probably just light years ahead of fool educators like me. So at any rate, those two things, I think, are my best practical hints for Mm -hmm. that. The only other thing I'd say is the comments in the that are a little bit more abstract, there's a lot of impiety smuggled into the kinds of resources we use. And Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's in the media that we let our kids watch, goodness gracious, there's just it's it's so ordered towards the celebration of the self, the celebration of you right. know, youth, all those kinds of things that where our kids pick up these ideas through media, that they're the center of the universe. That's just so problematic. So be careful for that. But it's also true of the curricula that are out there. I don't really mean the Christian curricula. I guess what I mean is that there's kind of an assumed um, neutrality when you get to middle and upper school. There's an assumed neutrality Mm -hmm. of academic discourse that is just false. You know, this assumed neutral vantage point makes kids think that to be intelligent or to be educated is to be neutral and objective. I think this is another place that I'd say we really need piety here. Mm. What we need is the idea that we believe credo ut intelligam. We believe that we may understand. Mm. And so even when it comes to things like math and when it comes to um, natural philosophy or science or history or literature, these different disciplines, We need to be very careful of trying to get so much critical distance so that we have some putative objectivity. I think the more important thing is for us to actually recognize that the life of the mind comes out of a strong faith in in Christ and ought to cohere with that. Mm. I love that. In fact, I think that's a great place for us to wrap this up. Thank you so much, Robbie. Yeah, this has been wonderful. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's, it's nice to hear your voices and kind of get to know you a little bit better. And um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to participate. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the Sisterhood of the Podcast. A big thank you to those of you who have been giving us five-star reviews on iTunes. It was awesome to read through those. We appreciate every one of them. We'd love to have more, so if you haven't already, we'd love to have you give us a review on iTunes or Google Play or any other app that you're using. If you'd like your question to be featured as a nitty-gritty homeschool question in one of our future episodes, just head on over to scalaysisters.com homeschool question and either fill out the form on that page or leave us a voicemail. I will be back with episode six in two weeks. You are going to love this episode. For a very long time, I have been trying to bring together what I've learned over the years about how subjects should be taught with how Bible and theology are actually taught. 
featuring homeschool dad Art Middlecoff as my guest. I get a huge lesson on how poetic knowledge, or what Charlotte Mason called synthesis, is so important for every subject, even Bible, maybe especially Bible, and how introducing analysis at too young of an age can be dangerous. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. You guys are actually probably better experts than I, <laughs> but I'll be happy to share with you. what I've. You can thinking. grade us on our practices. We'll tell you what we're doing. <laughs> you can tell us if we get an A or not. That'd be helpful. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Did he go out to California for Biola or how did he, how did you guys Yeah, that's exactly what he did. He came out for, came out for college and never went home. I always call him my souvenir. <laughs> I got a diploma and a husband. <laughs> Robbie? Yeah, I think that's. Okay, good. You're still there. <laughs> I thought you called you. Do you have anything left to add, Pam, before I close this out here for today? No, I'm just going to sit and ponder on that one for a while. <laughs> You're going to ponder piety? <laughs> ponder piety.